All right, well, let's go ahead and take our seats. And we have Amanda and Janie from the Thompson family who are going to lead us in the reading of God's Word. All right, our lesson from the epistles, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. So I, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Lessons from the Gospels. Please stand for the lesson from the Gospels. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, to, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave for all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning. We begin this morning, as we normally do, speaking more directly to the children among us. Well, kids, have you ever thought about what you would do differently if you were in charge? 
with one hand raised. <laughs> Maybe that thought has ever crossed your mind. How, would, how do you think your life would look different if you were in charge? You have something specific you want to share? A bunch of pets. It would have a phone. Yes, Romilly? Dessert before dinner, all seeming like great improvements. I don't know what your parents are doing. Yes? Make a jungle gym at our house. That sounds amazing. I think that's part of the hard part about being a kid, right? You're always being told what to do. You're not the one in charge. And you have ideas about how you could, things, you could do things better. You see, we typically have an understanding of what it means to be in charge. It means that what you do is for your own benefit. You make decisions that would benefit you first and foremost. Isn't that what's best about being the boss? You don't have to listen to anybody else. You make your own choices. You make your own decisions. You're in charge. How many parents have ever uttered the words, well, when you're the mommy or when you're the daddy, you can do it that way. But you see, that's not the biblical understanding of what it means to be in charge. It's not what the Bible says about what it means to be a leader. And I want to share a short little quote or a story. Um, I know many of you kids are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia series, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Did anybody read the other books in the series? A Horse and His Boy? Does that sound familiar? Well, A Horse and His Boy is one of the stories in the Chronicle Narnia series, and it's kind of like a, a Prince and the Pauper type story. You know, the familiar story, the Prince and the Pauper. There's twins separated by birth. One grows up as a prince, and the other grows up a very normal child, much like us. And the normal child in this story, his name is Kor. And we're going to fast forward to the very end when Kor finds out that not only is he a prince, but he's actually in line to one day be the king. So his father, King Loon, is going to share his first lesson on what it means to be a king. What does it mean to be in charge? This is what it says. Nay, said the king with a laugh, one must come first. Art Corin's elder by full 20 minutes. So his name is Kor, his brother's name is Corin. Corin grew up the prince, and Kor, the normal boy, wants his brother to be a, the king. But he says that can't happen. He looked at Corin with a twinkle in his eyes. But father, couldn't you make whichever you like to be the next king? No, the king's under the law, for it's the law that makes him king. Has no more power to start away from thy crown than any century from his post. Oh dear, said Kor. I don't want it at all. And Corin, I'm most dreadfully sorry. I never dreamed my turning up was going to chisel you out of your kingdom. Hurrah, hurrah, said Corin. So this is his brother, his younger brother by 20 minutes, who's very excited that he won't have to be king. Hurrah, hurrah, I shan't have to be king. I shan't have to be king. I'll always be a prince. And why is he excited? It's princes have all the fun. And then King Ludwig responds, that's truer than thy brother knows. For this is what it means to be a king, and this is the reason, uh, what I want us to hear this morning. This is what it means to be a king. This is what it means to be in charge. To be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and to laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. 
See, this morning we're talking about leadership in the church. Specifically, we'll be talking about elders, the ones, quote-unquote, who are in charge. And they're not kings, but they do bear the, human, the ultimate human responsibility in our church will be borne by the elders for the health and well-being of the church. And this is what, how I want us to view our elders, first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate a church, or desperate retreat. That's what it means to be a leader, an elder in our church. So as we explore more about what the Bible says about what, who elders are, let's go to the word, the Lord in prayer first and foremost. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We ask that you would satisfy us this day with your steadfast love, that you may be glad and rejoice all of our days. Father God, we, we pray for wisdom. We pray for guidance. We pray for humility. We ask that you might give us a vision of what biblical church leadership looks like. And I thank you so much that you've provided in our midst so many people who are well qualified to be leaders in our church. People of humility and graciousness. People with a deep love for the gospel and a desire to serve Christ. May you help us to readily recognize those among us whom you have called to be elders. We might elevate them. And would you strengthen them for the difficult task ahead to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat but ultimately to receive the crown of glory that Jesus promises. That crown awaits us all, yet leaders in the church are the ones who receive it first as examples to the flock in order that we might follow them as we follow Christ. It's in in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're talking about elders, church leadership this morning. This is going to be probably the last series uh, in the sermon series on the bylaws, and we talked about the three of the main principles that have been guiding our revision of the church bylaws, which is like a church constitution, the documents that govern the life of our church. First, we talked about meaningful church membership. Then we talked about church discipline and discipleship, and now we're talking about biblical leadership. Now, the important thing to note is that these are not three unrelated topics, but they're actually very closely related You see, meaningful church membership, the first thing that we talked about, it means that you, as a member of the church, you matter. And you have two primary responsibilities as a member of this church. First, it has to do with discipleship and discipline. Your responsibility is to all of your other church members to help disciple one another in the Lord so that we can avoid the process of church discipline. And the second responsibility you have is to identify, select, and ultimately elect leaders in the church, because we're a congregational church, which means that we will vote on who our leaders will be. And so one of your main responsibilities as a member of the church is to look around and say, who will guide and lead our church? And these bylaws, um, one kind of overview of what they do is the bylaws that we're going to be voting on next Sunday after church at a congregational meeting is our bylaws establish a church that is governed by the congregation, meaning you, the people, the members of the church, but led by a plurality of elders who are supported by deacons in order that the elders might devote themselves to the ministry of word and prayer. So currently, we are led by a church council that Blake prayed for earlier for us. And I just want to be very clear from the outset, this transition to elder-led in our church is in no way a denigration or disparagement of anybody who is on our current church council. And actually quite the opposite. I've, this whole past year, I've been amazed and so grateful for the way that God has provided every single member of our council. Uh, They're like the most humble, uh, talented, gifted, hardworking people that I know. 
and it's been a, a huge blessing and a privilege to work with them. So the transition to an elder-led church is not like a way of, uh, some way of like getting rid of the council. First and foremost, what we want to do and what the bylaws try to do is, is attempt to conform more closely to what we believe are the biblical standards for how a church should operate so we can be more faithful, more confident in the Lord's mission and vision for our church. What is most important, though, and this is really, what is most important is not the way the church is structured, like the system of government, because there's all different ways of doing it. We're a congregational-led church with elders uh, down the street, you know, Good Shepherd, their Episcopal Church, which means they have uh, a bishop that is above their church, Westminster Pres. They have a presbytery that's above their church as well. We, we're independent, which means our elder board is the ultimate authority, human authority, in our church. So there's all different ways of organizing churches. The important thing is actually putting the right people in those positions. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. You see, there's nothing magical about having elders that automatically guarantees that you're going to have a healthy and vital church. In other words, it's better to have the right people on something like a church council than the wrong people on uh, serving as elders. One pastor writes this. He says, One of the most significant human dynamics in the church's continuing spiritual growth and health is the kind of leadership it's following. So many potential mistakes and heartaches can be avoided simply by ensuring that, not on, that only those people who are biblically qualified become elders. So the most important thing is to identify who are those who are qualified among us to become elders. So it's very important for us, and the goal this morning is that all of us as members of a congregational governed church, we would understand what the role of an elder is. So that's what we're talking about today. What is an elder? And in answering that question, hopefully we'll be able to identify who among us would be qualified to play that role in the life of the church. Ideally, we want to elevate those who are already filling the, fulfilling the role of elder in the church and then publicly recognize and acknowledge them as elders. And just one clarification before we begin. So in most church contexts that I think most of us are familiar with, there's kind of a separation made between uh, elders, if you're familiar with it, or if you come up from a background of a church with elders, and pastors. Right? We have pastors. These are typically uh, people who are paid by the church, uh, this is their, maybe their full-time job, their vocational ministers. Oftentimes, they're like me. They're the person who stands up in front and gives a sermon every week, and you think, oh, that's the pastor. And then you have the elders. Well, the elders are those who aren't paid by the church. They're volunteers. They serve the church as lay elders. Maybe they have other jobs, and they uh, serve the church alongside their job. And I would argue, though, that that distinction that we often make between pastors and elders it's not a real, it's artificial. It's not, it's not something that you'll find in the Bible. You see, the Bible says that all pastors are elders, and all elders are pastors. So as we say we're an elder-led church, that we're going to vote and elect elders, it's the same thing as saying we're a pastor-led church, because all pastors are elders. In fact, there's three different words used in the New Testament that talk about this role of elder. One of them is elder, typically refers to an older person in the community, one who is worthy of respect and then there's another word that means overseer, and that's the word that's often translated bishop. So elder is one word. The second word is bishop or overseer, and the third word is pastor or shepherd. So elder, overseer, pastor. And what these three terms do is they typically, they'll generally talk about what is the role of the pastor. You see, elder emphasizes the spiritual maturity required for the office, 
overseer, the leadership and direction that they give to the church, and pastors suggest feeding, nurturing, and protecting the flock. And that's the one I want to focus on this morning, this last one, the elder as the pastor or the shepherd. And so what is an elder? Two things. Elders are shepherds, and elders are servants. Two takeaways, what you want to remember, elders are shepherds, and elders are servants. So first, elders are shepherds. All uses of the term elder that refer to the church office are plural in the New Testament, meaning whenever a letter is written to a church in the New, in the New Testament time, they never say elder. It's always elders, plural. The assumption is that in every single local church context, there are multiple elders. There's never just one single lone pastor or elders. And now there seems to be plenty of practical and wise reasons why this might be the case, and I think you could think of the many. Like, why is it good not just to have one person in charge, but many or multiple people in charge? And one pastor says there's all these benefits. Multiple elders aid a church by rounding out the pastor's gifts, right? Nobody's perfect. Nobody has all the gifts necessary to lead a church, and so if you have multiple people, then they can complement one, one another in their gifts. You make up for the lead pastor's defects. You supplement his judgment. You create support in the congregation for decisions, right? The congregation from the leader, the decisions from the leadership don't sound like they're just from on high coming down as one, one person's opinion, but it's a group of people together. This leaves leaders less exposed to unjust criticism. Such a plurality encourages the church to take more responsibility for the spiritual growth of its own members and helps to make the church less dependent on its employees. So there's all these wonderful benefits of having multiple elders. But I think the main thing, this is, just, this is me speaking now, I agree those are all wonderful consequences, but I think the main reason why there's always going to be more, or there should always be more than one elder in every church is because it's a recognition that Jesus Christ alone is the chief shepherd. And all elders in the church are merely called under-shepherds serving under him. When there's only one pastor-elder, this feeds into the human tendency that we all have to want to elevate one person. We live in a culture that always wants to just elevate one person to follow. One example. But when there are multiple elders, there's no confusion about who's the head of the church. It's Jesus Christ alone. And the plurality of elders serve as under-shepherds underneath the great shepherd himself, who is Jesus Christ. This is what uh, Peter says. If you follow along with me in our reading, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1-4. through 4. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I'd like to begin by focusing on a key phrase that appears twice in this passage, but that might be easily overlooked, and that's the phrase, among you. Among you. Verse 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. The question is, why, why does Peter give this seemingly unnecessary clarification? Like, it makes perfect sense if he were just to say, I exhort the elders as a fellow elder and witness, or shepherd the flock of God. It's assumed right? That they're supposed to shepherd the flock of God. That's, that is their local church. So why does Peter make it explicit? 
to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I think it's the fight against the, one of the most common and perhaps most damaging misunderstandings that we have about elders, particularly in our present day culture. You see, oftentimes people associate elders as something like a church's board of directors, right? All nonprofit organizations by law require to have a board of directors. Is that what the elders are? Are the elders simply the executive decision-making body of the church? When thinking about those three terms that I mentioned earlier, elder, overseer, and pastor, shepherd, oftentimes the aspect or role of overseer is emphasized and the role of pastor, shepherd is minimized. And this overemphasis on the overseer role is the reason why we often see in churches who becomes elders. Oftentimes, if we are honest, it's those who are most successful in a worldly sense of the word. The thinking is something like this, I think. Well, if person X knows how to operate or run this successful company, well, then surely they can apply the same wisdom, the same expertise in helping to run the church. They can supplement the spiritual wisdom of the pastors by offering their quote-unquote worldly wisdom. Bonus, if they're a mature Christian, like that's great, obviously that's what we prefer, that, that's what we want, but if not, if they're, if they're not quite the exemplary Christian that we would hope, that's okay, because we have the pastors, we have the church staff there to take care of that aspect of the church. Well, the problem with this view, though, is that it's, it's completely unbiblical. That's not what the Bible says. The church is set apart as a unique institution in all the world that's not supposed to look like the rest of the world. It's one in which character far far outweighs the importance of competence. As a church, when we're looking for elders, we're not looking for people who are successful. We're not looking for people who know how to manage people. We're not looking for people who are good at raising money or getting things done. The book of Titus, chapter 1, says or tells us what kind of people that we're looking for says this, if anyone's above reproach, very first thing it says, qualification to be an elder is you must be above reproach. You must be the husband of one wife, means faithful in your marriage. Your children must be faithful, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. It says you must be able to lead your family well. If you can't lead your own family well, there's no way that you could lead the church. You must not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard, a violent, greedy for gain. But he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. One of the most important aspects of an elder is not that he has worldly wisdom, but that he can rightly handle the word of God that he understands it and is able to apply it into not only his own life, but into the lives of others, those in his congregation. You see, the warning to us is we can build a very large and efficient, successful nonprofit organization that puts on a great show every Sunday morning. Has a ton of wonderful programs all throughout the week. We can do all those things and not build a church. And the easiest path in that direction to do that is by choosing leaders based on their competence and their charisma, but not their character and their Christ-likeness. 
You see, Peter gives us three wonderful sets of contrasts to show us what shepherding really looks like, how leadership in the church looks different from leadership in the world. He says this, Elders are to serve not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. This means that no one should be forced to be an elder. This is Peter's version of Paul in 1 Timothy who, chapter 3 says, if one aspires, desires to be an elder. It should be a role that someone accepts willingly and joyfully, primarily as the call of God in their lives. And this might sound obvious, but you might be surprised to hear that it's not. I've been in a number of conversations with people who have felt pressured by a pastor or by an elder to become an elder. Why? Because that pastor needs someone else on their side. Someone who would be able to vote with them on disputed matters. And so they're um, compelling that person to do something, to become an elder, that they're not doing so willingly. That's not what Peter says. He says that person should do so willingly and joyfully out of service and the call of God, not out of any human compulsion. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. In leading this way, the elders of the church provide a counter witness to the leadership of this world. You see, the New Testament speaks of two different ages that we can live in. The Bible speaks of this present age, and it speaks of the age to come. And the tension that you often feel in your Christian life as a believer living in this world is the tension between this present age, the way of this world, and the age to come, which is the kingdom of God. And theologians often talk about us as living in between the two ages, meaning God's kingdom has arrived in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And hallelujah that, he ha- that it has. We have full salvation, yet God's kingdom has not fully arrived yet. The age to come is something that still awaits us in the future. And so we live in the tension between the two ages. And what the church is, every local church, is like an outpost from the future. From the age to come, God has planted local, church, local churches in this present age to show others to be a witness to the world of what life in God's kingdom is meant to be like. What leadership in God's kingdom is meant to be like. And it looks different from the world, and that's exactly what Jesus says. Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45, that was read earlier. Jesus says to his disciples who are living according to this present age, according to what it's like for people in this world to be in charge. And how does Jesus respond? He says these words, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's the way of this world. That's what says when I'm in charge, I make the decisions for my benefit. Their their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Because you're living for the age to come. You live in God's kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which brings us to our second point, elders are servants. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. Elders are under shepherds under him. Jesus is the chief servant. 
What did it say? The Son of Man came not himself, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, providing the context for what it means for leaders in his church to serve as well. You see, this letter of first, that was written in First Peter, this was a letter written to people experiencing deep trials, suffering, and persecution for their faith. In the immediately preceding chapter from our reading, First Peter chapter 4, Peter writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test, to test you as though something strange were happening to you, saying, you should not be surprised that you're experiencing this trial right now because it is what you should expect as a follower of Jesus. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then immediately after that, Peter launches into what an overseer, what an elder of the church looked like. What that suggests is, when Peter says you should be an example to your flock, what does that mean? You should be an example to your flock in suffering. In responding to trials in your life with a deep faith and trust in the Lord. See, elders aren't expected to be perfect. But they are required to be exemplary. Meaning their lives should generally reflect Christ. And particularly in times of trial and difficulty— that's where true character is seen, right? I mean, we all know that. When everything's going well in your life, is it hard to be a Christian? Is it difficult to be thankful to God when everything's going exactly as you had planned? But it's in those moments when we encounter setbacks, difficulty, trials, disappointments, pains, bitterness. At that point, our true character is shown. So Peter commands elders to be examples to the flock, particularly examples of suffering. And in order to do so, it requires, as we talked about earlier, shepherds who are among the sheep. I love the way that one pastor puts it. He says, elders should be shepherds who smell like sheep. Shepherds should smell like sheep. And I don't know if you've ever been around sheep, but they don't smell very good. But shepherds are not, elders are not called to be some sort of like secret cabal over there apart from the people making these high executive decisions for the church. Um, I think there's one, are you familiar with the Sweet 8F group? Have you heard of these guys? Sweet 8F group? No? No? So much of Texas and our nation is influenced by this Sweet 8F group. I'll tell you about it. So the Sweet 8F group, influential group of Texas businessmen, often related to oil and gas, who met in Houston in the mid-20th century. And I'm sure, what, I don't, what's so funny? Sweet 8F group, you never, 8F. Okay. 8, E-I-G-H-T. So-called because they met in Sweet 8F in the Lamar Hotel in Houston. Sweet 8F. Okay, you might not be familiar with them, but I'm sure you know a lot of their names because they're all over Houston and all over Texas in like all the buildings. So you know the Brown brothers? George R. Brown, Herman Brown? heard of Jesse H. Jones, Gus Wortham, 
all these guys? Well, literally, they would meet in, I'll just say the room. (laughs) They would meet in this room in the Lamar Hotel, and they would get together and seemingly just plot out the future. They made Sam Rayburn the Speaker of the House in the House of Representatives. They were basically responsible for making Lyndon Johnson president. Lyndon B. Johnson would not have been president apart from these people who met in this room in this hotel in Houston in the 1950s. The question is, is that what we conceive of as elders in the church? People get together sometimes secretly away from the people and make decisions, controlling things from a distance, oftentimes for their own good. Or are they most supposed to be like Alexander the Great? Y'all know who Alexander the Great is? Yes. One of the greatest military generals. And what made Alexander the Great great? Not just military strategy, but his willingness to fight among his soldiers. One writer says this, Alexander the Great is presented as great basically because he personally and fearlessly led his troops into the most dangerous parts of the battle. Similar to one of the most feared generals in all of World War II. Do you all know who the German tank commander, the Desert Fox, is? Yes, that's right. General Rommel named the Desert Fox. It says he was often out in front of his troops, which was unusual for generals in World War II. So by the time of World War II and often what it's like today, the generals are not part of the battle. Right? You can't risk their lives. They're too important. Right? So they're off in a distance, planning the battle, playing their game of stratego, moving all the pieces around. But not Rommel. Rommel was with his soldiers. He fought among them. When a battle involving his forces began, the word went out, Rommel in the lead. And when his soldiers heard that, that inspired them. Rommel's in the lead. This message galvanized the troops to follow him, and it's no different in the spiritual warfare that the elders of our church lead us in. Because the Bible says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's no coincidence that Christian tradition records that all of Jesus' disciples, including Peter, as giving their lives for the sake of the gospel and the sake of Jesus Christ. See, Peter, Peter was in the lead. But notice that in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter does not present himself as set apart, as unique, as different from everybody else. Peter is not, in his own view, the man upon whom the Lord will build his church. Do you remember how we talked about that? Jesus said, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. He didn't wear that as a giant patch, telling everyone, guys, I'm the one that Jesus said he was going to build his church on. Follow me. He didn't say that he was one of the 12 apostles. No, how did he describe himself? All Peter said was, guys, I'm a fellow elder. I'm just like you. I'm a fellow elder, and I'm a witness to the suffering in Christ. So not just Peter in the lead, but all elders in the church in the lead. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Be with your people. Smell like the sheep. Get dirty. You see, elders are the tip of the spear. And as such, they often bear the brunt of Satan's attacks. 
course, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the, our Lord Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be pain, there's not going to be difficulty or suffering, that there won't be setbacks or apparent defeats along the way. The kingdom of God doesn't indeed advance by force and is the leaders in the church who will bear a disproportionate amount of that force. So being an elder is about being a shepherd. It's about serving others, sacrificing yourself. It's about bearing the weight and brunt of Satan's attacks. It's about suffering for the sake of God's people. Knowing all these things, any one of us rushing in line to be an elder? If leadership in the church is fundamentally about service and suffering, then who in their right mind would aspire to be an elder? Who of us wants to invite that kind of scrutiny into our lives? What do we say? Elder's not supposed to be perfect, but an elder's supposed to live an exemplary life. And then I read that long list of qualities in Titus chapter 1. You'll see another one in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Do you want that kind of scrutiny in your life? How do you spend your time? What does your browser history look like? How do you spend your money? Open up your checkbook. Do you live an exemplary life that you would be confident that another Christian, that all Christians in our church should aspire to follow? This is how I think we should think of it, similar to, there's this one uh, command, I'm going to speak more directly to our husbands right now, who are among us, and future husbands as well. But husbands, are you aware, future husbands, of how Scripture commands you to love your wife. He says it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 28. I'm going to read it for us. Husbands, love your wives. Then he's going to tell us how, what that looks like. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless without blemish. In the same way, so the way that Christ loved the church, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who who loves his wife loves himself. My question to us husbands among us, when you hear the Spirit's commands to love your wives as Christ loved the church with sacrificial love for her peace and your purity, how do you respond? Do you complain? You say, that burden, that's too heavy. What kind of person could love his wife in that way? It's not fair. Husbands seem like they bear an unequal weight of responsibility. Do you wish that the calling of a husband could just be relaxed a little bit? That the standard could just be a little bit lower? Something that you're more able to meet? Do you resent the Spirit's call to sacrifice for your beloved wife? When you hear God's words of the calling of you as a husband to love your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church, how do you respond? Or, does this command light a fire in your heart? Is your heart stirred with a deep desire to sacrifice and to give yourself up for the good of your wife? Do you, while acknowledging your weakness, your limitations, but do you sincerely long to be that kind of husband for your wife? Do you want to do everything in your power to be the kind of man that's able to love his wife in such a manner? And so it is, I think, for the aspiring elder. 
is there anyone among us today that when you hear that leadership in the church is defined by service and sacrifice and suffering, a willingness to place others ahead of yourself, a willingness to place yourself at the tip of the spear in the church's offensive against Satan and all the forces of evil, is there anyone among us who, like the prophet Isaiah, when God placed a call on his life, will stand with him and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. If that describes you, if you have that stirring, that aspiration that only comes from the Lord, if that describes you, embrace that desire and recognize that it's a gift from the Lord. But then there's a second step. So you have the desire, but part two is you must soberly reflect on your own life and consider whether your life is exemplary, one that other Christians should follow. Can you confidently say alongside the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ? If not, then seek to grow by God's grace in Christian maturity and the fruit of the Spirit so that one day you will be qualified to shepherd and serve and suffer for God's people. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. There are many elders along the way, elders in training. But if, after honest examination, you have the desire to serve our church as an elder and you do indeed live an exemplary life, then you should make your desire known. You shouldn't hide it. You should pray that others might recognize and confirm this calling of God on your life. And I pray that there might be some like that among us today. As for the rest of us, which I assume is the majority, and that's okay, I assume that most of us are not sensing God's pull on our hearts to be an elder, but that's fine because our church wouldn't function properly if we're all elders. God gives different gifts to different people, different roles, all for the building up of the body under Christ, our head. What we can do then is pray for them, to pray for our potential and our actual elders. Pray for them and heed the words of Hebrews chapter 13, 17, which outlines our responsibilities as members of the church to our elders. So maybe we're not the elder, but what can we do to support our elders? Hebrews chapter 13 says this. Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they are watch, keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So he says, you want joy in the church? Then humbly submit and obey your elders who themselves are seeking to love you, to serve you, to suffer for you. May God give us many faithful elders to govern and lead our church in the days ahead. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just get very excited to think about the future, about the people that you are preparing even now to lead our church's elders. I pray that you give them a special grace even today for those people that you're stirring within their hearts, a desire, an aspiration to be an elder. God, would you continue to fan that flame? Would you continue to mold and shape them into people who conform to the qualities given enlisted in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Most of all, would you clothe them with humility? And may we all uh, seek to uh, 
have humble spirits toward one another. We do thank you for Jesus, our great shepherd, our chief servant, and pray that we might be faithful in following after him individually, as families, and together as a church. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand now as we continue to worship.